Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, we've got some awesome guests today. Guests, plural, two people joining us. Another couple. I know. Just like us. Great couple. I know. They're a great couple. They are a great couple. They're they're doing a ton in this recovery space. We want to introduce Anna and Mitchell. Mitchell is a gratefully recovering addict of everything. I love how he just how he says that. Um, yeah. Anna is the wife of a recovering addict and in recovery from codependency herself. Yes. Anna and Mitchell, welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. Thank hey. you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to Mitchell, be here. Hit that. Uh, that way you introduce yourself real quick. How did that come to be gratefully recovering? I love, and then addict of everything. Talk just for a second about that. <laughs> yeah. Like I always had a struggle just being like, I'm an, I'm an addict in recovery. I wanted to say it like in a positive light, because I know there's the stigma with addiction and it's like, we don't want to be labeled as this forever, but I need it, but I wanted to put a positive spin on it. Um, so gratefully recovering addict and, uh, I had a real good friend and she helped me out in early recovery. And she used to say uh, she was addicted because people would say what they're addicted for or whatever. And uh, she'd say, I'm addicted to everything and more of everything. And I was like, oh, I love it. You know, and she's from Utah, um, helped me out in my early recovery. So I bring that out east. And uh, that's how I kind of introduce myself on the page. And then at meetings, if I go to after, you know, when all this COVID stuff's over. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it makes me feel a lot better. Cause it was everything, you know, every, everything and every, I mean, more of everything for sure. It doesn't matter what it is, drugs, alcohol behaviors. So yeah, there's never enough. I, I can uh, resonate with that for sure. Yeah. And, and Anna, I like how your introduction is kind of twofold. Yes. You're the wife of an addict, but you also make a clear distinction that you are in recovery from codependency yourself. And before we, we started, you know, the, the recording and we were just chatting a little bit, we, I want to I want to talk about this again here. We talked a little bit about how important it was for you eventually at some point to say, this isn't just all about Mitchell and Mitchell getting clean. I got work to do too. That's mm-hmm. something Cherry and I struggled mightily to come to that realization of. Can you talk about how that light bulb kind of went on for you? One, I remember one day when Mitchell was an outpatient and I was back at the house and I was sitting on the porch and I asked myself this question because I started realizing I was getting nervous. Uh, I was getting worried because he was a little bit later coming home from the outpatient from what it was. And a light bulb kind of hit me of saying, Anna, are you happy right now because Mitchell is sober and in recovery? Or are you happy because you're really happy? And I realized I was happy because Mitchell was sober. And that made me also really realize, wow, that's a lot of pressure to put on Mitchell that my happiness depends on if he is sober or not. And when that hit me, I really realized I had a lot to work to do. And then why I do say recovering from codependency on We Are is because when Mitchell and I started, I would always say, I'm working my own recovery. But then I actually had a lot of families asking, because we do it live, Anna, what drug are you recovering from? What drink, like what, what alcohol, like all these things. And I, I realized that when you say the word recovery, 
it's really associated with a drug or a drink. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I really am a firm believer that in a sense, my codependency may have not been a physical drug, but you better believe it was a drug because it gave me a high when I was helping people to push that low self-worth down or questions that I always had since I was a little girl and I felt my worth in helping people. And so I think it was like a twofold of realizing that, oh my God, I need to be happy on my own two feet, regardless of anything. It can't be dependent on another human being. And then it was also because I really wanted families to realize, no, look, you are worth healing too. Just how they're healing, we need to heal as well. And, and that's what I've discovered is that when Mitchell and I had our own individual recoveries, that's when things really started to slowly come back again and we found one another. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we need more of this kind of conversation to change culturally because we run into people all the time, the loved ones of alcoholics. And one of their biggest challenges for focusing on their own recovery is they say, you know, whenever family and friends who knows the situation a little bit, whenever they talk to us and ask us questions, they say, you know, how's Bill doing? How, how's Bill doing with, with his alcoholism? How's he doing with his recovery? And no one ever says, you know, how's, how's Jane doing with, uh, with, with your recovery from, from living with this and in, in the codependency side? 100%. It's not just a need for those of us that are in it and living through it to address, address it. It's a bigger cultural need to understand that, yes. you know, I, I think often the wives of addicts are just looked at as, oh, you put up with a lot of shit for a long time. Well, not only that, but it, it changed the person that you were and you've got to, you know, recover from that and heal from it. That's certainly a been my experience. A lot of judgment too, for being, yes. and especially like a spouse or a intimate partner with someone who has an addiction because you think for yourself, you think, well, how did I get in this situation? And yep. And then you get the, you know, the outsiders thinking, wow, they must be really dumb to stick around, but it's not just <laughs> dumb to stick around, you know? It's yep. And I was going to say too, is, is Matt, you brought a good point. And Sherry, I'm wondering if you felt this way too, to like, just kind of relate is he, when he just said that, I remember multiple times where people would come up and congratulate Mitchell for his sobriety. And it was still early on. And a part of me was like, I felt left out in the addiction. And now I even feel left out in the recovery. And I don't even know, left out isn't even the right word, seen. I felt like I wasn't seen or heard in the addiction. And then when he was in recovery, you did good job, you know, good job. And, and it, it really, I, I felt even more like in the darkness and alone, but I did realize when I started to work more in my recovery, just going, they're just doing the best that they know with, with the information that they have and the experience they have. But I don't know if you could relate to that, Sherry, that I'll tell you in the beginning of my early recovery, it hurt. It really actually hurt. Yeah. I don't know so much that I felt like it hurt because mm -hmm. I was just, you know, I just realized like there weren't a ton of people. I mean, that knew in the early stages, I think mm -hmm. it was afterwards. Um, and I did have like a few people that I had shared with. So I did have, you know, a few of those connections, but, you know, lots of people would congratulate Matt and thank him for his story and opening up and sharing and being brave. Um, but I felt like, I think that we've talked about it. Like it was almost like selfish. It was all about Matt's addiction when he was drinking and it was all about his plan, his, you know, strategies. Mm -hmm. Here are the new rules I'm going to put around my drinking. Or here's yep. his 
not drinking plan, you know, and then in early recovery, it was all about like, he needed to consume everything and do everything and be kind of selfish yep. to get through that. And mm-hmm. so I was like, well, here we are again, just all yep. about that. Yeah, still selfish you know? in sobriety. So, yeah, but absolutely. I like how you said, you know, seen, being seen yeah. and, and heard from others. I do feel like we had like within our church community, I feel like we had a few people that did also come to me and say, wow, that's really impressive because Matt had given a kind of a testimonial to fill in for pastor's absence one time. And, um, you know, I think it was very enlightening and that wasn't the first time somebody had talked about that, but I feel like I did have a little bit more support, but I definitely know that there are lots of spouses that don't have any support. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's interesting. You say that because I never thought about it. <clears throat> like going to meetings and stuff and all the A's that, that there are like, there's always speakers talking about the struggle they went through and then the rebirth into this, uh, you know, compassionate uh, person that they're working on themselves constantly. And that's like from the addiction side, I think it's rare to see the, the, the strength and in the trauma and all the stuff from the family side, because, you're right. Like people kind of overlooked that, that how much was going on during all that time, especially for the ones that are living with the addict or alcoholic, mm-hmm. you know, like we always say the addict and alcoholic is drunk or high during, during when all this stuff's going on, the loved one is there sober, taking all this stuff in and really traumatizing themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. So for, I think for speakers of families and friends to, to speak up and say, this is what I was going through. Like, this is what it made me feel like. And it also ties into a lot of our our childhood of, of how we felt back then is how the addict makes us feel too, really. And, and you know, what I did and then they got help and then how I'm still working on myself. And then that's, that's a success story. And I think that's going to allow other family members to be like, I want that, you know, because I know when I hear an addict or alcoholic speak about their success story, I say, I want that. And I think it'll help the families and friends to, to hear that same story and say, I want that and I can get there. Absolutely, Mitchell. You know, I love where this conversation is going. In our Echoes of Recovery program for the loved ones of alcoholics, we talk a lot about how there just aren't enough resources out there. You know, we're very blessed to live in the time we live in for those of us that suffer from addiction because there's a ton of resources now. There's alternatives to Alcoholics Anonymous. There are, um, you know, we know a lot about brain chemistry and nutrition, and there's all kinds of different things that are out there, but there's the resources are still limited on the side of the loved one. And that's why we're so excited to have you guys on today. And uh, we want to get into your story first, but then, then eventually you referenced it. I think you, you said we are earlier, Anna. We, you're, we are Recovery Facebook page um, where you guys have got a ton of resources, a lot of videos. And the, I just encourage all of our listeners to go there and watch the videos because some the pain that's on your face and the the joy that's on your face, other kids, yeah, honesty is the word. The, the honesty that's always there um, is really just profound. And for, for our listeners who, you know, are may or may not have reached out to us yet, because that's a tough first step to send that email or, uh, sure. you know, to, to look into, in our case, the Echoes of Recovery Program. I know that they're short on resources. I know that they want more. And whether they've reached out to us or not. And so We Are Recovery is a great place to go for more. You guys also have um, some interactive things that you're doing. I, I know that the, the Facebook page is interactive as well, but you've got your arena talks and you're into the arena 
Zoom meetings where you are welcoming the, the addicts and the loved ones of addicts to, to come on and talk. And, and, and I, the, I was looking through the different topics that you've covered on those recent um, you know, Zoom video calls and communication is mm-hmm. a big one. But they're all things that, that are just so important in this space. And we want to commend you on that. And we'll talk, I want to, I want to hear more about those programs um, in a bit. But first, I want to dive in a little bit to your story. If I've got the, my numbers right, you were married for 11 years of Mitchell's addiction. Is that correct? <laughs> it's like, thinking about the addiction is like a blur. But I, it's pretty much, it's we, about nine years, I think, were really the addiction. That's what I always say in my mind. Part. Yeah. But yeah, we've been together for 13. We were married for eight now. We've been together. <laughs> See, it's all blurred. We waited five years to get married, but uh, yeah, a really bad addiction for, yes. for nine to 10 years. Yes. yes. I'm going to cross out all my math questions that I had written down. <laughs> I don't think those are good. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, you guys are awesome. When, when, wait, I, us- wait, I have to say, I love that you're like, it's all a blur because Matt will like generalize that we've been together 30 years. I'm like, maybe it's like 25. I don't know. Yeah. It's just so long that I don't even, you know, it's not like I don't care, but it just isn't important. I'm just going to start yep. saying I don't a, a big chunk of a century <laughs> yeah. from now on. Yeah. <laughs> Longer than apart. So yeah, so I like that. You don't like it is, it becomes a blur and like, yep. And days just kind of meld together so when, yep. when, when you met were you both partiers like is it one of those typical stories before you had kids you were on the same path and then Anna matured and Mitchell didn't like talk us talk about that a little bit mm, I mean <laughs> that made me laugh when you used the word mature for me I'm such a kid at heart <laughs> but I, I go ahead Mitchell I, yeah I think so for me anyways I was I was a partier from a young age. Uh, I numbed, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol were my solution for a while. Uh, the worst solution possible, but they worked. Um, and that was about 10 years for me before I met Anna. Well, about 10 or 15 years before I met Anna that I was doing that. Um, some periods were really bad. When I met Anna, she was 21, 22, 21. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 27. So I was still partying pretty hard, but when I met her, I was like, well, I'm going to kind of dial down my partying and just do what she does. So when we met, I mean, we were going out to the bars and drinking and stuff, mm-hmm. but she was nothing like I'd get, I'd, I'd get uh, angry and, and belligerent, uh, you know, maybe once out of the week, once every, it was probably like once a month and then it turned to once a week, you know, and it kept, kept snowballing because I always pushed my feelings deep down inside so things that bothered me about our relationship would come out when I was really drunk. And she started noticing that within the first year of our relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I wouldn't consider myself a partier in a sense, because um, I did. I definitely went out like because that's the part that's hard. So I already want to say this. If there's you if you do have younger viewers, if you are 21, you don't have to listen to society. You do not need to go out and drink. You can have fun and really connect with people and have amazing conversations by not drinking. And I think when I was younger and 21, it was like almost like that ritual, like, here we go. You know, I can drink now. This is me going into adulthood type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like adult (laughs) adulthood. And so it was like, if my friends went out to the bar and drink, I did go out with them. 
but I just, and I didn't realize that from a very early age, yes, maybe life didn't become unmanageable with drinking, but I did not realize I drank because I was, had social anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so it made me feel comfortable to have something right in front of me. And then also I felt like I could communicate better. And that should have already been like, why do you have to communicate better with a drink? And so, but because there is like this society of where alcohol is everywhere, that that was one of the things that I, I read, Matt, last night when I was on your website that I like that you said is that it is, it's like so socially acceptable to a point where if you come out and say, I don't want to drink, people look at you like you're weird. Yeah. Like you're the one, like, what is wrong with you? And it's like, what, what? Yeah, I, I am. You literally gave me chills when you when you addressed the the young crowd uh, of our podcast listeners when you said, you know, you don't have to drink because that's where I think our message sometimes that's where we hit a roadblock with people who haven't lived through this and been in the mm. shoes that the four of us are in, because, you know, people think, oh, well, I, you know, I drank a ton when I was young and I turned out OK, but mm. but that doesn't make it OK. I mean, when we're lowering inhibitions, when you talk about social anxiety, that means we're like those natural defense mechanisms that we have where getting to know people is hard and we have yep. to work through that and decide whether we like each other. When we lower those, that's not a good thing. That, that, exactly. that, that results in a lot of people being married to someone they're not compatible with. And then yep. disaster ensues. And it doesn't take an addiction for that to happen because yep. like you said, when you're in your 20s, your early 20s, every date you go on is focused on alcohol. So it's pretty easy to get pretty deep in a relationship with somebody that you really don't have anything in common with or particularly care for once the, uh, the poison is out of the way. Yeah. So that, that's just an excellent point. Um, I would love to hear about, one of the things I love about your guys' story is you've talked a lot about how, you know, you can't make the addict get sober. You can't force that upon them. I've got a therapist friend who says the only reason humans make significant change is because we're in enough pain to make that change ourselves. Yeah. It didn't matter in our case, how much pain I was putting Sherry in and how much she was begging me to quit. I had to get to the point where I was in enough pain before I could quit. Sad, but true. Yep. But the one thing that the loved ones can do is create boundaries and stick to them. And I know that you've in some of your videos, Anna, you've talked about how your hard boundary of, you know, you were ready to leave. And Mitchell, you've acknowledged this too. That was a big thing that pushed you over the, the edge to say, okay, um, that's an additional amount of pain I'm going to have to endure in, in addition to what the toxin is giving me. Yep. And well, I, this is a, a, a wake-up call for sobriety. So, but I, I'm sure that didn't come about immediately, right? Like what was the <laughs> process of uh, you, Anna, as you said, trying to be the helper and trying to help him before you finally said, look, all I can do is save myself. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, I can definitely tell you that's why I say the nine years. So for nine years, I continuously would look at Mitchell and say, hey, you know, you're really hurting me. I don't know how much I can take. And then the apologies. Then mm -hmm. the next thing would come. Mitchell, I'm, you know, this is really hurting me. And it would just be on repeat. And it did get to a point where Mitchell would always say, I'm going to go to rehab. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then it never happened. And I will admit, Mitchell, I think, 
so funny to say, was the first one that really took the step into recovery because when he went to the rehab he went to, they offered a family program. Well, all of a sudden there was support. There was something that I honestly believed no one would understand what I was going through because exactly what Sherry talked about before. Why are you still with him if he's causing you this much pain? And then what did that do? Make me feel ashamed because deep down I knew I knew how I could make the pain stop. And that would be walking away. But it's hard when you, like I always say this, addiction is such a hard thing because you are physically looking at the person you love Mm -hmm. and you are watching them slowly die in front of you. You are mourning the death of your loved one. And what's so cruel is once in a while, you feel like you're getting to the stage of the end of mourning and they pop back up and there's a glimpse of who they are and who you know they could be. And so it holds you on for a little bit longer. And I think what really got me to that point is, I always say this to people is, I thought I held my first boundary the day where it got way too much. I took the alcohol, I slammed it on the table. I told Mitchell he needed to come home because I found other things upstairs. I found whippets upstairs and I knew he was drinking. and he came home, I slammed it on the table and I said, it's either me or the alcohol. I'm done. But I didn't realize. So in my mind, that was a boundary. It wasn't because one, I can openly admit to you, I was trying to control him in that moment. Mm -hmm. He's gonna pick me right over the alcohol, but ready. When I said it's either me or the alcohol, what did that even mean? I wasn't ready to leave yet. So if he continued to choose the alcohol, I was still gonna be by his side. And so one of the things that Mitchell and I always do and which helped us really communicate and work the resentments was separating Mitchell from the addict. Mm -hmm. And so all that did was in a sense to the addict was go, she said it how many times, you know, that this is getting too much and she's gonna leave and she's still there. And so it came to a point where after I got the support I realized that I had to work on me and boundaries are almost like, say, if you have really a cloud of toxin around you, boundaries are to put something up. So the toxin goes away and you can have a clear mind and see the picture. And I realized that when Mitchell came back from rehab the second time, it was almost like Mitchell never went to rehab the first time. And I always told myself I was never going back there because that was the worst part, honestly, in my life where the uh, like alone, like even being alone started to feel comfortable because I knew that that depression and that darkness was in a sad way, actually there for me more than Mitchell was. Mm. So instead of going out and expressing to people before I knew there was support, I knew that I could cry and be upset and that feeling of sadness would always be there. And it got to a point where I remember one night, Mitchell's did steal money from my wallet. Um, We got into a fight. Of course, here's my control though. I was ready to finally talk. Mitchell texted me and said, I'm not coming back yet. I'm still mad at you. I got so angry. I came down our stairs with a vengeance to honestly mentally hurt the way I felt like the attic had hurt me for years. Like that was my breaking point. You want to talk about rock bottoms? 
I think that was my rock bottom. And I opened that door and Mitchell wasn't there. I fell down on the steps and I cried because I realized I did not want the addiction to take the best part of me that since I was a little girl and it was to forgive, to always find the best in people. And I realized that the addict was taking all that away from me and I had the choice to say, nope, I wanna still be me at the end of this. And so I wrote a letter to Mitchell and I wrote a letter to the addict. And when I bared my heart and the addict looked back and said, you know, you didn't separate them that well in this smirk. It's, it, it, it was like, call an exorcist because something's in Mitchell and it needs to, needs to get out. But that was the point that I realized that I couldn't do anything. All I could do was save Anna. And then the amazing thing was never realize that that's where the possibility is of your loved one finding recovery is if you actually stop trying to save them and you save yourself, you allow them to save themselves. You know, that's, that's so close to what happened for us because we had years and decades of the, the codependency, the arguing, the, you know, if you'll only do this and do this for the family. Mm-hmm. And, and then it was when she stopped showing that much interest that yep. I got scared, you know, I, cause I never, you're right. I never believed that she would really leave. We had woven our lives together, not just by having kids, but we had a small business together and like, she was 51% on the small business. So she, I knew she couldn't leave because um, it was technically hers. And I knew she didn't want to run it on her own and just all these things to tie us together. So no matter what she said, I never really believed it. But then when she just stopped caring that much, I was like, and you know, we know that's now called detachment. At the time, we didn't know what detachment was. We didn't have a clue. I just knew that was scary. So Mitchell, I'm curious, as you're going along and you're hearing threats and the arguments are terrible and you know, you know, there's something wrong, but you just, it's not enough for you to make a change. What clicked for you to finally say, whoa, um, being without my wife is going to have to be added to my pile of pain that I'm already in. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So it, it was a, it was a very slow thing and it was something that was hard for me to even see when it was happening with my wife, because I've had, I had so much past with, with holding my parents hostage mentally and, 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 uh, you know, just abusive to them and, and stealing so much money from them and the and their business. And even from my siblings, stealing from them and holding them hostage with my words, my whole life. And, uh, you know, they were always there. They always come, they always had issues with, with how I was, be, I was treating them, but they were always there. You know what I mean? And I think that that's, that's why it's so hard. I think for the families is because, that the addict is the, is the family member. We are the loved one. So deep down, like we know that you're going to be there because you're our family. And I think the addict just takes that and runs with it and says, I can do whatever I want to do. And they're going to stay, you know? So I had all that background and then, you know, a ton of denial uh, when we first met and, you know, Oh, she drinks too. So we can go out and have fun. And then, you know, there was periods of me having stuff, having myself under control, of course, then there'd be a DUI and then there'd be under control and there'd be a DUI. And then, you know, just kept going back and forth. And I was just denying like how many times I hurt Anna uh, when I was intoxicated or high. And, uh, you know, I say on our on our we are that that my first drug was lying. So 
that always was there because for one, I was always lying to myself saying I had it under control. I'm not that bad. It only happened once. It only, this is like everything that came out of my mouth was a lie. I'm happy. That was a lie. I, you know, like everything I was saying, I love you to her. It was a lie because I wasn't showing it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I do love her, but it was not the, the, what I was showing her over the nine years was not love and she did not deserve that. If you would have told me that at the time, I would have said, no, look at all this good stuff I do for her. Like, you know, um, because I wanted to believe that I didn't want to believe that I was hurting her and my family as bad as I I was. And I think that had to compound to some really bad situations. The fighting got worse. The, You know, Anna started withdrawing from me, like you were just saying, and I started noticing that. So I kind of started going into the drugs and alcohol more. Uh, and treating her worse and lying more um, and manipulating my family more, um, you know, but they were all still there. And I think the first kind of awakening I had was it, it was never because Anna didn't know, we didn't know anything about boundaries. I mean, it, just my whole family's enablers. My dad's not, but I thought I hated him, but he was actually holding boundaries. That's why I hated him. <laughs> um, so you know, we didn't know what any of those were and she was trying to do the best she could, you know, and, but I remember just struggling day to day and it got so bad for me that I would be up for six, seven, eight days in a row with no sleep, you know, falling asleep at the wheel, um, you know, really questioning what I was doing in life. Uh, I would like drop to my knees in the backyard and just, and just say, God, why am I like this? Why am I why can't I stop? And then the next second I'd be crying in my truck, driving to my dealer's house, you know, and then I would get the drugs and I would do them and then I would be fine for another week stretch. And then I just dropped to my knees crying. And, and, you know, it was right around the time Anna always speaks about it, that she came in the room and I was just staring out the front window crying. And I just didn't know how I got to where I was at. I didn't know. I mean, at 37 years old, not knowing how I got to where I was and just being in this fog for the last 20 years was just devastating to me, you know, and she had put the little, the seed in there about going to treatment maybe, you know, and I was like, can I think about this, you know, cause I was really there. And, uh, you know, I think that's the importance of boundaries because that was the first time I think she let me feel it. You know, a lot of the times I'm like, where, you know, a lot of she wanted to say, because obviously there was a lot of pain, but she wanted it's hard for people to see the loved ones in pain. So she wanted to fix it and, and be there for me, even though she was so angry at the addiction, she'd still hold me and say, it's okay. And, and I'd apologize. And she'd say it was okay, but she really, it really wasn't okay, but I needed to feel that. So when she, when I was standing there that day, you know, and I was like, I need a night and she gave me the space. Mm-hmm. And the next morning I said, I think I want to go to rehab. And uh, she just started crying and said, I think that's a great idea. You know, and that made me feel even worse because she was, I, I, I thought maybe in my twisted head, I was thinking she'd be like, no, don't go. You know what I mean? Like, you don't need this, but that's just my warped mind. Well, you want me to save you from that, didn't I? Right. And she said, she was so happy. And I was like, wow. And then I told my parents and my, my siblings and they were all crying, like so happy. They've been waiting for this for 20 some years. And I was like, wow, I really knew I had a problem whenever every, whenever I thought it was a secret. And everybody was happy when I said, I'll finally go to treatment. So, you know, letting me sit in it and learning those boundaries um, is key. Cause like you said, you have to get, you have to get to that kind of bottom 
And then, but then you really have to feel that bottom. You can't get saved when you're at the worst of the worst. And that's the scariest part. I think. Do you think when I left you, cause that's when you always say is when you really felt it. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the first time in the treatment, then a couple of times in treatment. And then the last time Anna, you know, she left and like, I didn't, I still thought I was welcome up in Massachusetts. Like in my, in my head, like she still has never left me because I went and got treatment every time. And I said, to be honest with you, Anna, like you've never really left me like she did but we're together right now. Mm-hmm. I said, so I do believe you, but like in my head, if the addict would ever come back out, he'd be like, well, she's always been here still. Cause that's mm-hmm. how warped it is, you know, mm-hmm. but the leaving and me just being there and my family wasn't coming over anymore. Uh, you know, my mom has told me, my mom and sister have told me that they didn't want to come over cause they thought they'd find me dead. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and once I kind of heard that and no one stopped by the house for like a week or two. And I was like, and I just wanted to end it, you know? So that was a lot. That was the last time before I went into treatment. Mm-hmm. We, we spend a lot of time talking about how you've got to separate, you know, in my case, alcohol was the drug of choice. You got to separate the alcohol from the person and the alcohol is what's to blame. This, this person, you know, nobody, nobody when they're in middle school says, you know, what do you want to be when you, I grow up? Well, I want to be a raging alcoholic, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, societal accessibility the societal glam glamorization and then you know and then personal choice as well plays in of course but uh the no nobody does that on purpose and it's so hard for people to separate the addiction from the person who's addicted and i love that you guys talk about that a lot about how you've got the addict and then you got the person that's suffering from the addiction um you you recently did a video, Mitchell, with your father. I'm glad you brought your family into this because it was really compelling to watch. And one of the things that your father said is, I know that you've got to separate the addict from Mitchell, but they're in the same body and it makes it really, really, really hard. Yep. The reason I brought that up, I, we talk a lot about the triggers that exist, especially for the loved ones well into the sobriety and the recovery of the person who's, who's got the addiction. And Sherry and I always tell people, you know, the triggers, they aren't terrible. It's, yes, it's codependency, but it's, it's not awful to keep those barriers up, those walls that you've built to protect you, because you can't control, like in our case, Sherry couldn't control whether I was going to relapse or not. So her having those barriers, those, those walls, the defense mechanisms, so if I didn't come home on time or you know, if I was acting funny for that to send up, uh, you know, warning signals for her, that's, Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it was very interesting how your, your father talked about how hard it is to separate the, the addict from the addiction because they're in the same body. It's, it's such a struggle. Anna, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about during the first part of the recovery process, what was that like for you to say, okay, I want to believe in him. You know, he's been to rehab. He seems sincere this time, but God, I just don't know. Was, what was that early sobriety period like for you? Uh, still keeping on a whole bunch of masks. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that's the best way to put it because, um, I, I, we actually just read, um, my first impact letter that I wrote to Mitchell and I realized when I read it again the other night, that it was all these things of why the addiction impacted me, why I was hurt, why I was breaking, why I was angry, why was this chaos. The last paragraph kind of buttered him back up again. 
And I realized that's what Mitchell said is that I never really would fully speak my truth to, to the simple thing of this. Anna, are we going to be okay? We're going to be okay. But inside, I don't know. But I felt like if I spoke my mind and how I really felt, I was going to hurt him to the point where he was going to break even further. And so I felt like, I'm sure like that savior mentality. I cannot show my weaknesses because if I show my weaknesses, this person's going to break. And that right there was a big thing of my codependency, but I didn't know that. I just really felt like if I showed something that was going to happen. And I think I did have hope, Matt. I, I admit that. Like I all of a sudden was on like cloud nine and then ready. Here's the biggest fallacy that I know a lot of families think. And so did I. When Mitchell comes back from treatment, it's all going to go back and we're going to be okay. That yeah. was my, that was my mentality. That's when the real work begins. Yeah. And, and so I know for a fact, but I can tell you too, though, when he left, I did feel like, again, even though I had a support group on Saturday, I did feel a lot alone. I felt like I was left with the wreckage and he was allowed to go work on himself. I had to pay the bills. I had to go to the bank and look at the bank and going, all these charges, are they real? Are they not? And like cry to the teller. And the teller just looked at me and said, sweetheart, looks like you're going through something really hard. You know, you're strong. And of course that made me cry even more, you know? And so it was like, yeah. So I think there was like a mix of, I want to hold on to hope. I think when Mitchell comes back, he's going to be fixed and everything's going to be okay. And then also still really upset of like, again, I felt like I was really getting hurt in the addiction and then he's in recovery, but here I am trying to clean up all the mess, but I didn't realize either. Guess what? Mitchell could have come home and cleaned up a lot of that mess, but I felt it was my responsibility to do so. Mm -hmm. I can... Even out of the corner, man, I can see Sherry's head is about to nod <laughs> off. She's yeah. One, it's the one problem with radio versus TV. Nobody can see how enthusiastic Sherry is. With <laughs> well, and it just made me think about um, some comments we've heard is is the loved one, the addict goes, or excuse me, the addict goes to treatment, and the loved one is there holding the household together, like you said, cleaning up the wreckage. And they feel it's their job. And we said it would be great if when the attic goes somewhere, the family could go also in conjunction with to have that sort of that, you know, month to really dive in and really get the, the things that they need to be taking care of, taking care of. So, well, it, it, just, it just proves that our, you know, recovery system for the families, for the loved ones is broken when the bank teller is a key component of your yeah. support system, you know? <laughs> yes, I never, and I think, but see, I think that's what even contributes a lot to the stigma of why do families need to recover, okay? Because this is the truth is when the, some, someone's suffering from addiction, it's not generally focused on helping the family. It's only focused on helping the one that's um, suffering from addiction. Then- yeah. What happens when they seek recovery? The one that's suffering from addiction goes to rehab. Again, not the families. So why would the families even have the belief that they need to heal and have recovery too? It's almost like really believing that 
that's why a lot of this is what I say. And I, and it, it does make me cringe sometimes when I say this, because I know a lot of people don't want to hear this is that I know I was a victim for a while, but then I know that I continued to choose to be the victim. And I hate saying that because I don't want to invalidate anybody's pain because what they're feeling is pain and trauma. But I do know, like Mitchell one time said on our We Are's and said, I treated Anna like a doormat. I stopped him and I said, I allowed you to treat me like a doormat. And that hurt to say that. It really hurt to say that because it was like, why did you allow all those behaviors to always happen, Anna, before like you put up boundaries, you did all those things. But I think it's because I didn't realize that the things that Mitchell was working on I had to work on, I still was that little Anna inside that just believed that I was stupid, that everyone was better than me, that I was the one that took so much time on tests. I had to go, you know, to the extra classes. My peers looked down on me and that went to everything in life where even if someone saw potential in me, hey, Anna, I really would like you to do this job. My mind went, how do I say no? Where are all the excuses? And I didn't recognize that there was so much in there already with me. And so I admit it, like when Mitchell was always the focus of the addiction and the recovery, I still thought that I'm good, he's bad because I'm helping him by trying to do everything. So how am I the one that has anything to work on? That's what I, and I admit that, that's what I really did believe at that point in time. It, It was that, codependent behavior of kind of being like he's hurting me i'm not doing anything wrong oh that's profound yeah like we had actually just been talking about that um recently about how there are things that i allowed to happen and i you know i'm dealing with that like like you said you know you were the victim for a while but then you allowed the behavior to continue so because we just get so lumped into that codependent state and You know, and also kind of finding that being a victim and being a martyr, like that's your role. But you've also talked about how the addiction changes us so much, takes what we were and turns us into somebody that we are not really be. So I completely get that. Yeah. You know, I, I struggle sometimes with, you know, what are we doing here with this podcast? What are we doing with the Echoes of Recovery Program? We're not psychologists. We're not therapists, but what it is, you just spoke to it. This is there's a cycle to this, and all we want to do is shorten the cycle for people yep. who reach out and listen to us, and so that they, for them it's not nine years like it was for you or yep. uh, 330 years or whatever it was. <laughs> it's some shorter period of time to come to these realizations that because there's there's so much universe universe. Uh, universality <laughs> it's so universal the the steps and the patterns that from the beginning of the addiction to the you know if you do find recovery it's the same story with different details over and over again and the only thing we can do is share our details in hopes that it speeds people along in in the the reckoning that they're going to have to come to and so i want to talk a little bit about what we see as the universal cycle to this recovery process, recovering the relationship specifically. I know that you guys have talked a lot about shame and resentment. For us, the dealing with the resentments, once, once I was sober, 
and had some significant amount of sobriety. And we, we said, oh my God, I thought this was gonna fix everything, but instead this relationship is way worse than it was when I was drinking. Um, we, we finally dove in and figured out we, there were, Cherry had so much resentment that we had to address. And so for us, that was step one. We had issues we had to deal with with the kids. Mm-hmm. Then you get into the really hard stuff of rebuilding trust and in, our intimacy was just destroyed. We had to rebuild that. So what was the first part of that process for you with dealing with the resentments? How, how did you work through that? You want to go first? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I and I was just thinking about this too. And we were just talking, um, you know, it's about, I think it's a shame that, that in this society, we kind of grow up, you know, if I say something to Anna, that means that she's the opposite or something. You know what I mean? It's like, if, if one person points out something, it means the other person isn't at fault. And that's just so not right. It's like, you know, when Anna's like, you know, this will fix the, or, or, uh, uh, you know, I said, I treated you like a doormat and she says, no, I let you. It's like, we can both take our ownership of what we did. Yeah. We're both right. And I think that's the biggest thing that led us to working on resentments is realizing that we both have our perspective of what happened for me. I had to really keep my pride and ego down because and the thing that did that the best for me was Anna separating the addict from me, because as soon as she said Mitchell did this and it was a bad thing, my armor went up because I was defending Mitchell. But when she said the addict did this, I could get mad at the addict, too. And me getting mad at that behavior actually empathized with Anna. You know, that was saying, I see you. I see what the addict did to you. And I am just as upset how can I support you? How can I work through this with you? I'm always here. Um, You know, so I think the communication skills are key to the resentments. It's, you know, we try to set them up as if Anna's talking about some trauma that happened to her, it's too much for me. It might be triggered me. I have a responsibility and she gives that. She lets me do that is say, this is getting a little tough. Can we stop this for a half hour and revisit it? Mm -hmm. Let me just make sure I check my pride and ego again and say, she's not attacking me. And she says, yes. And it might be hard for her to be like, no, I'm really getting to somewhere, but we respect each other's boundaries with communicating. And, um, <laughs> those are boundaries. I didn't even realize that, <laughs> you know, and it's communication boundaries. It's like, if, what's too much, you know, and, and, you know, therapy has really helped us both out with that. I had yeah. a great therapist and a Darren. lot of great therapists, but Darren, did a lot of family stuff and bridging the gap because I worked on me and I worked on her. And then he said, well, when you go home, how are you going to bridge that relationship gap? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like communication skills. So we dove into uh, the seven principles of making a a marriage work by Mm -hmm. John M. Gottman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fantastic book, Uh, all these things you can do. And, you know, so we got a lot of techniques from that. Like Mm -hmm. Anna's not going to come, come at me to work through resentment real assertive to where I arm her up. And then I'm like, Nope, Nope, not listening to you. You know, she, she comes in and says, Hey, I'm having this trigger. I'm, I'm kind of this, this situation here is reminding me of one, like three years ago. Can we talk about it? And I'll say, yeah, let me finish up right here. What I'm doing. I want to give you my full attention and I give it to her. And then I ask her how she wants me to respond to this um, information. Do you want me to just empathize with you, console you, do you want feedback? You know what I mean? And it's, it's okay to, some people say, well, it takes some fun out of like communication is key. Oh God, like anything you can do to clarify what you mean 
is just going to help that relationship so much better. And I think for me, that's what it was separating the addict, me keeping my pride and ego down, and then really furthering my education on how to correctly um, communicate with each other. Yeah. I go ahead. I just want to say that that piece of for you to separate the addict, that makes so much sense because you know, you're already carrying a ton of shame, right? Like you, you don't need more shame to feel bad about yourself for what you've done, Mitchell. That's how I felt. Um, and so, so for Anna to separate that that way and say, look, let's both be mad at the addict together. It's, you know, I felt like I, I got to a pretty good place ego wise. And I know bragging about how good I was about my <laughs> ego is <laughs> not proving my point very well, but <laughs> But you've already got so much. And so when we talk about putting up those defenses, like you talked about putting on your armor, it, it doesn't take much to make you want to put the armor on it. You don't have to be an egomaniac and think that you were perfect in your addiction. You're, you're already just full of shame and any little bit's going to put you over the top. So I love, I love how you do that. Um, Anna, yeah. what, 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 what's your feedback on handling the resentments? So I, no, and I'm, I'm wondering if Sherry can relate to this one too, is that in the beginning, I didn't want to speak my mind because I was still terrified that the addict would come back out and respond to me. Oh, so yeah. like even us, even honestly, I don't know, um, a simple thing as Mitchell looking at me and going, Hey, Anna, where do you want to go today? I don't know if I should speak my mind because I will always remember that one instance of when I spoke my mind and I had the addict screaming at me. And so I got scared of everyday things because I was like, is this Mitchell or is this the addict? And I will always remember this one instance. And we were just talking about it again last night. Mitchell was about six months into recovery. Um, I had went down to Utah. He was an inpatient and we were back together again to see if we could actually make it work. Um, and all we were doing was going over to one of the sober living's house to have a cookout. And Mitchell was going to cook this Portuguese meat that he does an amazing job with. Well, I told everybody Mitchell does an amazing job. Like you can't wait till you try this. Can't wait. I noticed Mitchell was getting very aggravated and irritable and he was more snapping at me. And I looked at him and I was almost like, did I do something wrong? And Mitchell's like, I just don't like how, you know, now I have all this stuff to live up to. Like, why did you do? And I remember I went back to my mechanism of, I'm just going to shut down and stare out the window. And Mitchell all of a sudden went like this though. And I think this was our clicker to realize it was way more to that moment than just that moment. And that's what I feel resentments are is Mitchell said, Anna, and I'm glad he said this because this was a turning point. Anna, I feel like there's so much more to this conversation. Like we've had it over and over and over again. What's going on? And so when he pulled into the sober living, he saw me breaking down. And I think this was also Mitchell. And like, instead of going into that house, like we used to, and then just put on happy faces, Mitchell went, I don't care if we're going to be late. Let's go about down the park, down the road, and let's talk. And I will tell you that was one of the hardest conversations because I think that was the first time that I was like, the addict's gonna yell at me. He's gonna <laughs> yell at me. And um, we realized that all in that moment were all those times of if I spoke up for myself being scared 
that the addict was going to lash out to me. And Mitchell and I really realized in that moment that he, like he said, calmed down and then said, Ian, I can understand why you would be scared. And when we had that longer conversation, guess what? It changed in my mind of that isn't the addict because the addict wouldn't treat me this way with respect and actually have a conversation with me. And that was the first time that I realized there's a little bit of, of Mitchell. There he is. And I'm going to tell everyone out there, it gets easier, but the first quite a few messy. times is very terrified because it's not going to be like you're automatically, oh, we learned communication skills. Let's, uh, we're going to put this to test and, and ace with 110 extra points. Yeah, like no. it gets messier. Yeah, no, first. you don't, you don't want to express yourself because you are so scared because there's almost a habit that that's what you're going to get. And so I would say like, this is what I always say. And I tell my clients this too, is like, the only way we're going to make something comfortable that's uncomfortable is push into it so that it becomes comfortable. And it is, yes, stepping on those eggshells that we don't know are going to be okay. And that's like as simple as, as so honest. Yeah. It, right? And I just want to bring up quickly, because this time I just remembered is that Mitchell came on the bed one time. He sat on the edge of the bed. It was after I was already feeling upset and down. This is why I also know I need to work. I needed to work on my recovery. I was feeling down. Mitchell came in, he sat on the end of the bed. I was talking to my lead coach on the phone and the way he was sitting on the bed, putting his head down my mind, he relapsed. Mm. He's going to tell me he relapsed. I said, Mitchell, are you okay? Well, I'm still on the phone with someone. So here's my codependency, right? Still on the phone with somebody. I'm fine, Anna. Okay. Few minutes go by. Are you really okay, Mitchell? He's like, yes, Anna, I'm okay. And now at that moment, after I got off the phone, I remember about to walk out the door. And I think this was another turning point in our relationship. I could have walked out the door and could have had all those feelings of why is he irritable? Why am I feeling this way? Except I turned around and I told him, Mitchell, I know you're irritated with me and this might make you even more irritated. <laughs> but when you sat on the end of the bed like that, I thought you were gonna tell me relapse because that is what used to always happen in the past. And when I stepped on those eggshells, something beautiful happened. Mitchell realized why I was asking so many questions. It brought back to all those moments where he wasn't really there and the families, us, we were feeling it. And so he could relate and he understood that I did have pain. And I also understood that it was okay to continue to speak up because again, it wasn't the addict, it was Mitchell. So it's really that time over consistency, but I'm sure you felt that Sherry, like in the beginning, it's hard to speak up for ourselves because we are scared that the addict's gonna lash out on us. And, and it's that insanity that we like, we know in our hearts that they may be using or that they're gonna get, but we contradict ourselves and go, are we insane? Yeah, for sure. I, I do feel like that. And I feel like I had you know, I had like low self-esteem coming in. I always thought Matt was so much smarter, so much more educated, yep. so worldly. Like he was more mature in a lot of ways, even though he's a little bit younger than me. I always felt like he was so put together. So even a simple question, like you were presented, where do you want to go today? Like Mally, like, what do you want to have for dinner? I don't know. What do you want to have for dinner? Yep. Like that has been something that has been so irritating to him throughout our whole marriage. Just tell me what you want but I didn't even know what I want. And then adding in the addiction, 
and the inconsistency of his um, responses or the way he would behave if I said something that would disagree, that has been such ingrained in my brain and it's hard to really pull away from that. And, and to Matt um, saying earlier, I really love how it's like Anna, the attic and Mitchell. It's like yep. there are three entities in the marriage that mm-hmm. I know that I say I blame the alcohol, but it's really like, you know, because like your dad was saying, Mitchell, like it's in the same body. But I really love how in almost here in this relationship, it seems like I'm looking at three entities, the attic that was there. And then you can really focus on Mitchell and you can really focus on Anna. And then you can say, that's what the attic would do, but that's not what Mitchell would do or, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think that's so important too. Like you said, it's, it's the, 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 uh, like insecurities, right? So you know, in like that conversation Anna was talking about, like I answered her conversation so snippy because I was feeling like a six-year-old kid in first grade getting called out to do a spelling bee, not being able to, you know, this is, this is why I'm snapping her. She's, she's, she's building up something her husband does good to where I should be like, oh, thank you. You know, but in my head, I'm just beating myself down. So this learned behavior that I've done for 30 some years is coming out in this conversation here. And it's like, this is the work I need to do. I need to do the work on what are my, what are my beliefs of myself from a child? And then what do I bring into the conversations I have? Like aunt, me and Anna are so similar on that. We just, we have very low self-esteem growing up. We, we were people pleasers. We didn't want to rock the boat. We always put on a, a, a happy face, you know, to look like we were composed for others, like so much similarities. And I think that helps with the bridging the gap in our relationship too. It's, it's finding that commonality between the addiction, my addiction and her addiction. Uh, you know what I mean? And it, and it all stems from our low self-worth, our low self-esteem, uh, how we talk to ourselves as a kid. And up until now, and we, we both really two and a half years ago, just started challenging uh, that little child inside of us, you know? And that's, I think that's in a nutshell. I know for a fact, and I can tell you this wholeheartedly, if I did not find a recovery, there was no way in heck that we were working for resentments. Because if Mitchell looked at me and wanted to work on something, I would have put my armor on and got defensive, rather seeing that Mitchell was just challenging me so that I could look inward and see something. And I think if I did not work on myself, those resentments would never have, would never have been worked through because I would constantly always be in my head And those moments that like what we're talking about, Mitchell would be irritable. I'd just be sticked into him seeing that he was irritable, not challenging myself in any way. So I can tell you right now, absolutely. If I did not work my recovery, there's no, because I wouldn't have learned how to separate the attic from Mitchell either. And that was our biggest thing of how we work through resentment. I think it's inspiring because, you know, when when I saw her working on herself when I was in treatment, I was like, wow, she's working on herself. Like. I need to be really diving into working on myself because I'm here. This is like, I'm here. I'm away from society. I'm in this safe place. And Anna's continuing to work on herself. It inspired me to keep working on myself. And I think that inspired her to keep working on herself, which inspired my family to work on themselves. So it's the hardest thing to do to look inward at what your part is. But when people see you work on yourself, I mean, that's the magic. I think that's the magic. And that's how families can start, you know, just seeing the strength and working on themselves. And I think if we can, like you said, shorten that, shorten that time of pain in the addiction, because 
if everybody works on themselves all the time, then that, that's going to be a shorter relapse because the boundaries are going to be there. The self-worth is going to be there. You're going to challenge yourself. And then I think addicts will be able to, addicts and alcoholics will be able to get help sooner because the families will already be working on themselves. So getting that out there, getting this out there, talking about it, uh, it's just crucial. Yeah. For me, seeing Sherry work on herself and, you know, engage with a therapist, it, it was really great for me because like we talked earlier, everything had been selfish on my behalf. I was a selfish drunk. I was selfish in early sobriety. It's all me, me, me. How am I going to recover? How am I going to get sober? Sherry, you got to help me, 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 me. And then when, you know, when she would go into her office and get on that Zoom call with the therapist and I'd be in the other room, it felt so good. It felt like there was an evenness to it. You know, for once it wasn't me. Like she's getting the help she needs. And I, I don't just say that like, cause I'm, you know, super altruistic or giving no alcoholic is we're selfish people, but it felt like, Oh, finally, you know, it's not just all about me. It's about, it's about her. And I, I love how you guys talked about, cause we couldn't agree more. Just like there's three things, there's Mitchell, there's Anna, there's the addict. There's also the three components to recovery. There's my, my recovery and Mitchell's recovery. There's Anna and Sherry's recovery but there's also the relationship recovery. Yep. And when we first started working on the relationship, we did that before Sherry had taken time to do her own recovery and it just didn't work. It didn't work for all of the reasons you guys, you guys mentioned. So when we, when we move on down the, the, re, the relationship recovery cycle from the resentments, you know, then there's the, these two big things, the trust and the intimacy mm-hmm. and I think it, anyone who's listened to an hour plus of this podcast understands how addiction can destroy trust. I don't, I don't think we necessarily need to talk a lot about that other than rebuilding the trust is just a monumental Herculean thing to do. And it takes a ton of time. It's not even just yep. about effort and work. A lot of it is just time and having those triggers happen, but, but realizing there was nothing behind it, you know, he didn't relapse. Okay. I'm going to replace that bad memory with a good memory of the time the yep. trigger happened and he didn't relapse and just kind of moving through that to rebuild the trust and trusting yourself as a loved one to be able to express and had and practicing that because it is sure. a practice you have to practice to express yourself and give your opinion and speak your truth so yep. the more times that we can trust ourselves and trust our addicts to like put forth my real feelings my true thoughts yep. do it respectfully without being defensive, you know, yeah. practicing that kind of builds the trust too. I, I feel like for me, oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I've been open, the more I feel like more, like the trust is, is better because I can trust myself and I can trust you. Yeah. That it's going to work out. One of our biggest struggles that we've, and we've talked a lot about this very openly on the podcast. It's Cherry's least favorite thing for us to talk about on the podcast, but we do is just rebuilding that intimate connection. Because in our case, you know, I I think there's, from all the people that we've talked to and worked with, there's kind of two different paths that couples take when they're suffering from addiction um, in the sex and intimacy world. What we did was just continue to have routine, loveless, you know, frankly, awful sex. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's the, the other side of the street where people just, they separate and there is no intimate contact anymore. Um, But either way, it's just terribly destructive because the connection isn't there. 
And then in the part of the recovery process, once the trust starts to rebuild, because that's foundational, then you know we started working on uh, becoming intimate again. And again, not just sex, but the, the emotional intimate connection. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can talk a little bit about how that has been for you guys rebuilding that intimacy after it's so destroyed through addiction. There you go. You can go if I can go first. <laughs> go. So I'll just be, Mitchell and I have talked about this and we'll be brutally honest. We're still working on the intimacy part. Um, uh, Anna, so, so yep. are we. We're, we're okay. four. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Cause I, um, Mitchell, I mean, we talked about this actually. It's, it's funny that it came up again. Um, we talked about this the other day, uh, actually on a little bit on one of those meetings was that I didn't recognize that I was actually creating my own trauma in some cases. And what I mean by that is I felt like it was my responsibility to give intimacy. And maybe that was a reason why Mitchell was an addict because maybe I didn't, you know, do it enough or whatever the case may be, but I believed um, it was maybe my fault. So what would happen is the addict would pressure, pressure, pressure. And I know for a fact, I could always say no and walk away. It was nothing like that, but I always said yes, because I did have that low self-worth. And I thought maybe if I did this, maybe Mitchell will get better. Yeah. And so the intimacy actually became like it was a stranger. And I've always been that one that like, I need to know that I really love someone if I was ever going to be intimate with somebody. So for me to look at Mitchell, but see a stranger and see the person that continuously hurt me over and over and over again, it was almost, I'll be brutally honest, like closing my eyes and saying, please let this be over. Mm. And in, and what happened was, is, I didn't recognize through all those times I was creating my own trauma to now to the point where it's somewhat times like I kind of get snapped back into those moments and feel like I have to do it because even though I didn't have to do it back then, that was in my mind that it was my responsibility and I had to do this because maybe it would help. So I actually kind of just still push away sometimes because it's, it is, it's hard. We're still gaining the trust in, and I will be honest on here is that I've recognized that I think there's more to that. That's not just the addiction of things that I also have to work on in the past that, that contribute to it. But that is something that I, I did recognize that, you know, it's hard for Mitchell, but I will tell you for anybody out there, the one thing that I've noticed that helped us, that's helping us get is just having those conversations like those hour-long conversations that are just deep that are filled with connection it's one of the it's it's something that I've recognized that slowly is the bond you know because I just I just felt like even in the past like if I use the word cuddling but if you were cuddling I felt like it has to go to this then right it can't just be cuddling anymore because with the addict it did seem like that like if you're just cuddling it had to go somewhere else. And so I did, I always thought it was expected of me. So it's hard sometimes even to do things like that because I just feel like it's gonna be expected of me. And now I'm like, I don't want to. And so Mitchell and I are still slowly building that part, but to be honest, like things have been coming up way more. And I think this is gonna be very soon, like a big growth because I think it's one of those things, whatever you wanna call it, the universe energy is like, 
look at this. You can do this. Like I just told you earlier on this podcast, making the uncomfortable is working through it. And, and I know that, that we're there, but yeah, I, I admit that the intimacy is the addiction and what I continue to do definitely caused a lot of damage there. Oh yeah. I mean, it just warps it warps everything about it. I mean, I think, I think that's a good word poisons or warps everything about it as the, as the alcoholic, I'm not present in the moment. It's supposed to be a connection. I'm there to, to get mine and get out. And, um, God, what a horrific, you know, position to put both of us to both of us in and to expect I mean, talk about triggers that, that the cuddling thing is, I mean, you've talked a ton about that, Sherry, you know, every time I would touch you, you would think, Oh, well, he's going to expect to go all the way. And, uh, what a traumatic place to place to be in. Um, don't want to put you on the spot, Mitchell. Do you have any, any thoughts on the topic? Anything For sure. For sure. So like, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of facets to that too. And it's, it's like I said, I think a lot of stuff stems from, uh, you know, how we talk to ourselves uh, growing up in early adulthood and, and then moving into our relationship. Right. So like, I always had this low self-esteem and, and, you know, I, I had some other relationships that were kind of longer, you know what I mean? And then I've had a lot of meaningless relationships that, that I'm not really that proud of, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, when me and Anna first met, it was like this really great physical attraction to each other. She was from a totally different place in the country that I was from. We met randomly, like it, this things were just like, just different. Right. And it was exciting we didn't know till later on that, that, that excitement started to vanish because the addiction was coming out, you know, and Anna was starting to feel not as comfortable and not as trustworthy of the person that she was uh, feeling pressured really to be intimate with and uh, physical with. And um, I started taking that as a hit to my self-worth early on, like, Oh, we were really good for a couple of years. Now this is taken away still in denial and me and Anna didn't know that this was like all our parts to play and, and, and the addiction, how bad it was and how bad my self-worth was. We just knew the beginning of a relationship and how good it was. So, you know, I started getting resentful towards Anna for kind of pulling that physicality away. And that made me get angrier sometimes when I was drunk or be more pushy towards like getting physical, um, you know, physically intimate. And, uh, you know, that created friction early on in a relationship, you know, yes. maybe three, you know, within really the early. first year to second year, you know, um, cause we were long distance. I didn't feel comfortable. She had more guy friends like this, all this stuff starts working on my psyche, you know, and, and it's like coming out whenever I would be just hammered, you know, and uh, it's just really started damaging our intimacy then. And mm-hmm. I think put nine, 10 years on top of that, um, you know, I felt like, obviously she was withdrawn from me when I was in my addiction because just of the obvious reasons of being treated like crap. Um, but I do know, like, it must've been so tough because I'm pushing like, Hey, like we got to do something. We got to do something. We got to do something because that's where I was getting myself for She still loved me. If we still got physically intimate, you know, she still loved me. She wouldn't leave me. She wouldn't do this. This is where I'm getting my self-worth from. 
other side of that coin each time that happened Anna was re-traumatizing herself like she's saying she's looking at a stranger she's closing her eyes uh this you know I want this to stop hearing that in early recovery is tough Mm -hmm. with a sober brain hearing that she did not want me to even touch her was very tough and I had to say I understand. I, whenever I say I treated you like a doormat, I had to remember that what the addict was doing to you and say, that is right. I wouldn't have, you know, with this sober mind, I don't want, if we didn't work out, I would never want someone else to treat her that way and make her feel that way. So I need to get that mad at the addict. And I need to say, you know, that is extremely tough. And I'm sorry that those, those situations happened. You know, what can we do to start working on, something that we both want Mm -hmm. and really what that looks like for me now is just giving her the space and just i'm i'm in no position and i know this to push anything on anybody let alone my wife and to to put in her head oh we need to be intimate about this it's in her time because i have done my damage you know what i mean so i have to just constantly remind myself like i'm there for you we can talk about it because i know that i know the damage that's been that's been caused. And it's, it's just, it's like an onion. We keep getting, we keep peeling more off and more off, you know, and uh, there'll be times that are great. And there'll be times that, you know, it's, it's something comes up. And like Anna said, a lot of stuff's been kind of coming up lately because we've been getting more vulnerable, vulnerable about that subject. Um, And I think that's just God saying, Hey, you're ready. So Mm -hmm. I've just really tried to be here for Anna right now because she is working through uh, a lot of this stuff and it's coming up and, and that's all I can do really, you know? Well, I have to say your vulnerability, your honesty, not just on this topic, but throughout the conversation, just tremendous. I just know our listeners are going to to love to hear your perspective on all of this and just how open you are in communicating about it. And as we, as we talked earlier, the need for more, not less resources in this area is huge. So in closing, I'm hoping you guys can talk a little bit about the resources that you have. Talk about your We Are Recovery Facebook page and your arena talks and into the arena Zoom meetings. Um, tell us how people can connect with you and, and, and just hear more. Um, so I, I, I'd like to definitely say is kind of it. So how We Are Recovery first initially started because we started We Are Recovery before anything else. And it was because we actually did um, a podcast of one of Mitchell's really good friends. And he was a huge huge part of two. my life. Yeah. To Shane Bright and Chris Alder. And they had a podcast and they're like, Hey, do you guys want to come on? And of course we were nervous as all heck. And, and that was the big, like before we are happened and we're like, sure. And so we came on and did it. And Mitchell and I recognized something. It was always either geared towards the addict or the family. And Mitchell and I said, we all need to recover though. And so Mitchell and I said, why don't we start something? And of course, our initial thing was, let's start a podcast. But Mitchell and I are still (laughs) those lovely people. We have great ideas, but sometimes it just does not follow through. So what happened is it morphed into a Facebook page where we came on live. And it really was because Mitchell and I wanted to find that bridge. We wanted to be vulnerable and share with people and find that understanding. Because what I realized is, The reason why I recovered and Mitchell recovered wasn't because people stayed quiet. We recovered because people were vulnerable with us. And I saw it as I want to speak out loud 
just the way these amazing people have helped me. And Mitchell felt the same way. And so that's what we do is like when people listen to us, and I'm sure you feel the same way when they listen, they're like, thank you, thank you. It's like, here's the thing. I know you're going to carry on that torch too. That's how we're going to defeat this disease is not staying in the dark. All of us being willing to hold our candle out and everyone lights a candle up. Well, guess what? One candle may look like, ah, you can't really see anything, but if everyone starts to do it, my God, that room is going to get so bright. And so like for us, that's like what we are is that's what I know that your pages and your podcast is. And it gets me so excited because like what I told you before is like, yes, I had a lot of anxiety starting this. And there's a part of me that's going to be really anxiety filled when this podcast comes out, but ready. (laughs) I know that I'm doing this for me, but ready. It's a ripple effect. If we can just help one person, guess what? Fighting through that strength was all worth it. Because I also know in a weird kind of reality, that person is challenging me to grow. And so that's why what became We Are Recovery. And then from there, it's kind of amazing is Mitchell went to, oh, sorry guys, my alarm went off. Uh, Because Mitchell went to I Am Recovery, I was just being me, but I still was really early in my recovery. Well, the people that work there came up to me and said, Anna, would you like to be a coach? And I looked at them and my first instinct was like what I told you before, how can I say no? Um, and I knew though, that a part of me, since I was a little girl, I did want to help people, but I needed to learn how to do it in a healthy way. And so from there, I was asked to be a coach at I am recovery and counseling. And I've been doing that for two years. And from there, I kept advocating for, can we do something for the families? Can we do something for the families? And now they had the arena talks, which is an amazing thing because yeah, once a month, once a month in person, but they're starting to stream it on Facebook and it's about an addict in recovery, telling their story to spread hope. And then they had something called into the arena, which was a workshop. Yeah. Letting the families come into the minds of the addicts and like find out more about addiction. Exactly. And I said, could we do like a meeting? I really want to do one. That's like open to the general public. And Jared's like, all right, let's do this. And again, anxiety filled when I had that first meeting, but then pop, 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 like 40 people were on and that didn't help the anxiety, but it was, I can tell you right now, people keep coming back just the way that I kept coming back to that Saturday meeting. And I know right there that it would be an absolute shame if I let my anxiety and the things that I need to work on stop from helping other people. And I will admit, I do need to learn still sometimes that if someone calls Anna, it's okay if you're doing something and it's really important to not pick up the phone <laughs> and you can call them back right afterwards. So I'm still recovering from my own codependency. And I, I, I think that's the, that's the beauty of it is, you know, a, an amazing counselor started a Saturday meeting and that's where we met the two guys who did the yeah, podcast Bober. that we got on and their podcast is the <clears throat> the voices of recovery yeah. uh, they have about 50 or 60 podcasts uh, a more addict based but yes. it's a good resource if people want to listen to that uh, but she did a thing for the families and it took off and and that's where Anna and still she's in contact with I don't know 10 10 ladies over the course of this last three years I think she's only met one of them mm-hmm. it's all just been on zoom and stuff so um, you know they have this tight-knit group and they've started groups from that and then this whole into the arena thing, like 
Jared Casey, the owner of I Am Recovery. He's the one that created Into the Arena and the Arena Talks. Right. And he's a therapist. He's been in the field for 15, 20 years, drugs and alcohol, uh, uh, family life counseling. Just the other day, she's only been doing the the Zoom for um, four weeks and she's saying how many people are coming. And he's like, wow, you really think there's a need this much for the families and friends? So, yeah. so to put that perspective, like someone being in the field that long and all these people, it is geared towards the addict. Yep. It needs, the need is the family and the friends. It, yep. The need is there because I think the need is there for all of society. We all need to do better with mental health and the way we talk to ourselves and the way we process things and the way we judge people when we don't, we can't empathize with others. And, uh, you know, that's what it's all about. And just for him to say, I think we need this. And we're like, it's just taken off like crazy. We're humans. Yeah. Like that's the bottom line is we have people. And I, I guarantee you, you have people too, that there are people that probably don't even have an addiction, but they listen to you because like, we're human. Yeah. We all have our own character flaws and really like this is my philosophy major coming out, but like my favorite quote was Socrates is the unexamined life is not worth living. And the truth is, is just us as human beings is that we should have this curiosity to continue becoming. We never should just be, we should always be becoming something new. It had that curiosity of knowledge. And it's just exciting to me that like communication skills, it's not just for addiction. It's for everyday it's for life, like <laughs> skills and tools like we learn about, about masks and all these things. It's not addiction. Yeah, and I say, yourself. like, I admit this. I know saying this, some people go, you are nuts. You are crazy, Anna. But I'm, do I wish it again? No. However, I am grateful for the addiction. Reason being is I know for a fact, or I really believe that if the addiction didn't happen, I still would be saying no to everything. I would still not be seeing my worth. Um, and I wouldn't be doing things like, I would not be doing this. I can tell you this right now, two years ago would not happen. Okay. And so it's kind of like, you know how I see it as sometimes everybody, you wake up, you eat breakfast, you get in your car, you go to work, eat lunch, go to bed, do these things. And there's always like this little pebble on the window going, look at yourself work on yourself. You know, there's so much, you have so much potential. Well, addiction is like this giant boulder, boulder that gets crashed through the window and it goes, look at yourself. <laughs> and so for me, like when that happened and you know how, like we were talking about Matt and Sherry, like the past and thinking that we'd go back to the way it was. Here's the truth of it. I loved old Anna. It's not anything to say that old Anna was bad or old Mitchell or our relationship but I would never want to go back there because it was like a veil has been lifted off my eyes and I see my worth. I see the potential in me that I know still can get tapped. And same thing with Mitchell and our relationship. And I can tell you this wholeheartedly, we have never been this happy individually and in our relationship since we found our own recoveries. 100%. You know, I think what would really help you guys spread your message is if you had a little bit of enthusiasm about the things you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, but to, to, that, to that last point, someone in our Echoes of Recovery group, she actually was on our podcast. Her name is Jane. Um, not, nobody I know that's in recovery or has experienced recovery really likes the word recovery. And so she just kind of switched that and said, we should call it discovery. And that's to the point... Yeah. Because you're not really trying to recover back to this person you used to be. You're trying like to be that. 
something new, something better, um, and continuing to work on ourselves. I mean, that's just, you're right. It doesn't, addiction or no addiction, like that's just a blessing of life if you figure out that you need to be continuing to work on yourself forever. And sometimes it takes a boulder to the windshield. Yeah, it does. <laughs> you guys, you guys are so darn adorable. I, this is the, I think this is our 75th episode and this is the first time I've ever wished it was video instead of radio because <laughs> so cute. The, I, you know, I strongly encourage our listeners to go to your We Are Recovery Facebook page and watch some of the videos because when one of you is talking, the other one is often like grinning in the other person's ear. And like sometimes Anna gets this face when Mitchell's talking and like she knows what he's saying is true and she wants to add on. She's got this face like I can't wait till he's done so I can so I can say the yeah. next yeah, you guys, you guys are great. Thank you, Thank so, much you so much for being on the Untoxicated Podcast. All of the resources that you mentioned, the Into the Arena uh, Zoom meetings, those are on Monday nights. I think six to eight Mountain Time. Yes, since that's when where we are, that's our time zone. Um, and everything that we've talked about, you can find on the We Are Recovery Facebook page. Uh, yep. So that's a great place for people to go to go first and, and learn more about you and look at your cute little faces on your videos. <laughs> thank Mitchell, you very thank much. You, thank you so much for being here. Thank yeah, you very much. And, and I awesome. think, I think also in the future, we'll get a video because if you guys would love to, we'd love to have you on, on, we are. And uh, I think that would be amazing because I, I do it's, it's, I feel a really good connection here to be honest. For sure. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. We'd love to do that. Yeah. Awesome. awesome finally meet you thank you so much yeah. for being here. you're welcome thank you guys thanks for what you do it's awesome before you go we hope you'll consider these three resources if you love or loved an alcoholic we offer support and connection in our echoes of recovery group check us out at echoes of if you are a high functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org no matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.